Hello and welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists podcast. My name is Erin McCreary and I'm a clinical assistant professor at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine and the Director of Infectious Diseases Improvement and Clinical Research Innovation at UPMC. Today we are embarking on a very special mini-series on our favorite topic, Breakpoints. We have leaders and experts from two breakpoint setting organizations, the Clinical and Laboratory Standards Institute, or CLSI, and the United States Committee on Antimicrobial Susceptibility Testing, or USCAST, to teach us everything we need to know about how we interpret whether or not we can use antimicrobials to treat our patients. As a disclaimer, we could talk about this topic for probably days and days, so we are focusing only on antibacterial breakpoints, and we're going to focus on certain drug classes and recent breakpoint updates. If you want some information about antifungal breakpoints and antifungal susceptibility testing, we encourage you to check out episode 64 from September 2022, where we discuss those topics. And for now, let's introduce our speakers. So first, Dr. Mike Satlin is an infectious diseases physician and the clinical director of the Transplant Oncology Infectious Diseases Program at Cornell Medicine. Dr. Satlin's research interests are the epidemiology, diagnosis, and treatment of multidrug-resistant gram-negative bacterial infections, particularly in immunocompromised hosts. He is the co-chair of the Breakpoint Working Group of the CLSI Subcommittee on Antimicrobial Susceptibility Testing, and also participates in multiple committees of NIAID's Antibacterial Research Leadership Group, which is ARLG. And if I can get through all of these acronyms and all of these words, it is my honor to welcome you, Mike. Thanks so much. I've never been invited to a pharmacist party before, so this is really exciting to me. I hear you throw good parties. We are very excited to have you. We do throw good parties. Next invited is Dr. Jim Lewis. Dr. Lewis is the Clinical Supervisor for Infectious Diseases at Oregon Health and Science University. His responsibilities include co-directing the OHSU Antibiotic Stewardship Program, and serving as the infectious diseases clinical pharmacist for OHSU. His professional interests are antibiotic susceptibility testing, antibiotic and antifungal utilization, and the optimal integration of rapid diagnostics into antibiotic stewardship. Dr. Lewis previously served as the co-chair of the Breakpoint Working Group of the CLSI, and now he's the chair of the CLSI AST subcommittee. So Jim, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely, Aaron. Thanks so much for the invitation to be here. And last but not least is Dr. Jason Pogue. Dr. Pogue is a clinical professor in the Department of Clinical Pharmacy at the University of Michigan College of Pharmacy and an infectious diseases clinical pharmacist at Michigan Medicine. Dr. Pogue's research interests focus on the epidemiology and management of infections due to multidrug resistant gram-negative bacilli and antimicrobial stewardship. Dr. Pogue is a past president of SIDP and the chair of the executive committee of USCAST. So thanks for having me, Aaron. It is always a pleasure to be on the greatest podcast in the world. It is certainly a privilege to discuss an area near and dear to all of our hearts So with Jim and Mike, who are certainly leaders in this space. Well, guys, I am so excited to have all three of you here today. You all are thought leaders in this field representing these two organizations, and I think we have a lot to break down about breakpoints for our listeners. And so we are embarking on this mini series. We're going to do five episodes over the next five weeks. So buckle up, we're excited. And this first episode is going to focus on what the heck exactly are breakpoints? How do we set them? What goes into it? Because we know it's multifactorial. 
And I really want our listeners to appreciate everything you guys consider when you are making these recommendations for different antimicrobials and different bug combinations. I also want really high level for us to understand what these two organizations are, why they both exist, and how your philosophies may be similar or different. And so to start this conversation, Mike, can you lead us off by explaining what exactly CLSI is? Sure. Thanks, Aaron. So CLSI, first, what does it stand for? So it stands for the Clinical and Laboratory Standards Institute. So it's really a nonprofit organization that develops laboratory standards worldwide. And it's completely independent of FDA. And there's actually a lot of parts to CLSI. It's not just microbiology, although that's what we're going to focus on today. So they have specialty areas that include chemistry and hematology, veterinary medicine, newborn screening, and then, of course, micro, which is relevant here. And then even within micro, it's not just standard bacteria. There's a veterinary committee. There's a committee that talks about mycobacteria, nocardia, a fungal committee. And then what I participate in, which is the standard antimicrobial susceptibility testing committee. We're here to talk about breakpoints, but I just want to point out that the mission of CLSI is antimicrobial susceptibility testing, at least of this subcommittee. And that doesn't just include breakpoints. Breakpoint is just the final interpretation of some of the types of tests that we use. But there are committees that are focused on developing methods for antimicrobial susceptibility testing. How do you do broth microdilution? How should you do disdiffusion? How do you do auger dilution? How do you do susceptibility testing for anaerobes? What about organisms that require special growth conditions or antibiotics that need iron-depleted media? Reducible clindamycin resistance. All these things that you learn with your clinical micro colleagues are all part of CLSI's mission. Quality control. What quality control strain should we use and what should the acceptable ranges be? We discuss this stuff every meeting. What's, what bug drug combinations is there intrinsic resistance? And so all that is in addition to what we're going to talk about today, which are breakpoints. Essentially, it's a volunteer organization. So Jim and I are both volunteers. And anyone who's interested in this stuff, it's the meetings are open, can join CLSI. We have two in-person meetings a year, and then a bunch of working groups and ad hoc working groups that kind of do work in between. But it's an open meeting, and uh, I just got involved by showing up. But uh, hopefully that's a little bit of an overview of what CLSI is. Jim can correct things that I said that were wrong. That's the beauty of working with Mike is he very seldom says stuff that's wrong. So there's not really a whole lot to correct there. I think I would also point out that, as he said, the scope of CLSI goes beyond just breakpoint setting. And I think that's really one of the strengths. I think when you look at the group, it's extremely multidisciplinary with expertise that kind of ranges all over the place. And really, I think that this is really a scenario that allows for some very cool inputs from a variety of stakeholders. And I think Mike did a really outstanding job of really highlighting a lot of those important roles that the organization plays. Awesome. Thank you so much. Jason, your turn. What is USCAST? Yeah, so thanks for asking, because I'm going to guess that the majority of our audience knows what CLSI is. And I'm also going to guess the majority of them maybe don't know what USCAST is. So I appreciate you asking. I also appreciate that thorough description from Mike. That was a great description of CLSI, because I would like to just say that 
We're a little bit different than that. And by a little bit, a lot of it. A lot of those extra things that, that Mike talked about, that is not the focus of our organization. Really, it is a susceptibility test breakpoint kind of setting organization. And that's our goal and our function. So just a little bit about our history and who we are, because again, I think a lot of the pod listeners may not know. So this was formed a decade ago. So in 2013, and really it was as part of UCAS. So UCAS will have national advisory committees from different countries that can be part of the process. And so really the reason that USCAS was formed, the general goal was to make sure that the US had a voice in the UCAS process. Now I will openly acknowledge, and I'm actually really proud of, of people on this call in particular, that over the last few years, there's been a really great effort to bring UCAST and CLSI together, trying to harmonize between those two organizations, a lot of joint task force and working groups. And I think that's great. And when USCAST was formed, really the goal was to give the US a voice in the process of UCAST. And the reason was is because it was a growing behemoth. Again, Historically, internationally, every country had their own breakpoint setting organization and UCAS started to consolidate all of that into one. And then what you saw was, is that even outside of Europe, which EU is European Union, which that's a whole other question, I guess, at this point in time, but that's the EU. What you saw was that other countries outside of that would join in as well. And so we wanted to give a voice to that process for the U.S., the overarching goal is to harmonize breakpoints globally. And I think that one of the big things that we do and that we focus on that's probably a little bit different than what CLSI does for breakpoint setting is while CLSI and UCAS do these really extensive bug drug lists, I think that we're recording this on March 8th. I'm going to guess a lot of our audience just got the M100 edition 33 update that came into their email that is this comprehensive bug drug antimicrobial susceptibility test breakpoints. USCAS doesn't do this. Really what we try to do is we try to do deep dives on a few difficult or what we consider to be neglected susceptibility tests testing breakpoint situations that we can really use our expertise. And I would say things that we tend to focus our efforts on are things like beta-lactam, beta-lactamase inhibitor combinations, because that gets, there's an added degree of difficulty in setting breakpoints for those. We are particularly have an affinity for looking at older drugs that might have been neglected in the past. In fact, a lot of the stuff we're going to talk about in this um, Mini series in future episodes looking at aminoglycosides, looking at quinolones and recent CLSI breakpoint changes. A lot of the foundational work from that comes from USCAS. And really, our goal is to use the expertise of our organization, do those deep dives, make our own recommendations, but also have that, that data be available for anyone else to use as they see fit. And as you're going to see within different organizations, even the same data can be interpreted in different ways. And so that's Overall, what our goal is or how we function, similar to CLSI, we have a wide variety of disciplines. We have physicians, we have pharmacists, we have microbiology expertise. We have various people in our membership, and we also have some advisor groups to help inform. Similar to CLSI, we, we make our meetings open. We actually just had a virtual meeting last month. If you're interested, all of the recordings for that are on our website right now. You're free to take a look at that. Actually, we encourage you to do so because 
All of our recommendations are currently open for public comment period. And so again, we value input, we want input. And then the other thing that I would say is similar to what Mike said for CLSI is it's an open organization. If you have an interest, reach out. Very interested in hearing from you. Again, we are a community. We all want the same things and we want to use everybody's expertise to the best of the ability that we can. Thanks, Jason. I think that segues really nicely into my next question, which was how do people get involved? I think you all have said this is open and anyone can join. Do you mind quickly, I guess specifically, if I'm listening to this podcast and I'm like, I really want to be involved in USCAST and or the CLSI, what should they do next step? Where should they go? Again, if anyone is interested in joining, one, I'll give you my story, but I will just say that, again, you don't need a fancy story to to get involved with USCAS. If you want to be involved, shoot me an email. Let's have a conversation about it. I'm happy to have that discussion. Again, we'll look to get you involved in maybe a working group, depending on what your interest area, just to get a taste of what we do and see if it's something you want to do a little bit more. For me, for better or worse, as with most things in my life, it all goes back to the polymixins. That's how I first got involved in U.S. CAST in 2017. I think it was around the time, Mike and Jim, where where the joint CLSI and UCAS task force on the polymixins was coming into to place and starting to look at this class. U.S. CAST was also looking at the polymixins as well. And so they reached out to me. I got a message from Keith Rodbold and Paul Ambrose who were leading it for U.S. CAST and they asked me to lead that work group. And so I led the U.S. CAST recommendation for breakpoints for that class and then just Again, that was my first introduction into the organization, and I just got more involved from there again. And then rose rose to chairdom. Yeah. Jason Jason Hogue, the scientist, the best scientist known for the worst drugs, ladies and gentlemen. You make me feel so special. (laughs) You may also know him from his vancomycin work. No, I'm just kidding. No, it's incredible. It's incredible. So you heard it here first, guys. If you want to get involved in USCAST, as easy as emailing Jason. And the website for USCAST, I will say, is really user-friendly, publicly available. All these documents that we're going to talk about over the next five weeks are there. So that's super exciting. Thank you. Guys, CLSI. So Mike, you said you just showed up at a meeting. How do I do that? How do I register for the meeting? How do people get involved with CLSI? Do I just go to Jim's house? That seems fun. Yeah, that'd be one good way. So the meetings are open and anyone can register. And I think the key is coming to a meeting, preferably in person, just experiencing everything. And you'll probably know after the meeting whether it's something you like or something that's completely you don't like. It's going to be bewildering because there's a lot of stuff going on and we try our best to try to orientate first timers. But so my personal story is I went because Steve Jenkins, who was a, a longtime CLSI member, kind of a giant in the field of clinical microbiology, became our director of clinical microbiology when I was a fellow. And uh, he realized that I was interested in susceptibility testing and I like microbiology and just told me to come and he'll take me under his wing. And so this was, boy, I think it's 10 years ago now. And I uh, showed up for this first meeting. I didn't quite know what was going on. It was a little bit bewildering, but the topics were really fascinating. And I just, from the first time that I went, I realized this was something that was really cool to be involved in and just understanding the process of how breakpoints are set. And then you start realizing how much there is for you to learn about microbiology, PKPD, regulatory stuff. And it's a volunteer organization. So if you're interested and you are reliable and want to get involved, you'll get involved. Maybe more than you think you like uh, should be involved. But uh, it's like the Hotel California so song, right? You check out any time, yeah. like, you can never leave. 
But uh, yeah, it's it's been awesome for me. So I'd encourage anyone interested in this space, you know, whether it's US CAST or CLSI, this is really important and exciting stuff. All right, thanks guys. So Jim, I'm going to come yeah. to you next for the question oh. of the question of the hour. The point right, in the episode where people are just going to fast forward to this point moving forward. They're not really going to care about how Mike got involved in CLSI to be honest. <laughs> what they're going to care about what they're going to care about is this question right here. And the question I have for you Jim and others you're going to fill in after, but the question is how do you set a breakpoint? And the reason I asked this question is because I'll be quite frank, once upon a time when I was a little PGY1 first year pharmacy resident, and I decided I really wanted to do infectious diseases. And I was interested in this. And I, I think I was on like a medicine rotation. And I remember Googling what goes into a breakpoint or how do you set it? And I thought it was like this fixed thing. Like I thought it was like, if this, then this, and it was very objective and very clear. And I couldn't find the answer. And I was so frustrated. Why can I not find this simple black and white answer? And what I found though, is that it's actually quite complex. And the things that go into setting breakpoints are multifactorial, multivariable, and they try to be consistent across each bug and drug combination. But sometimes you may not have all of the things you would like to consider and you have to make a best decision based on that or ultimately decide there is no breakpoint because there aren't enough data, et cetera. So what goes into this decision and how do you approach this? I think the good news, Aaron, is that I just basically demonstrated my Jedi mind powers because I was basically able to get you to say everything that is really the answer to the question you just asked me. So I strong work there. That, that was a nice job. It's really funny because I think dealing with PGY2s in this space, I think this is one of the biggest aha moments I see from them is, wait, what? And the realization of what you just described. And I still find myself really steering folks to a very, if you really want to nerd out on this topic, a really nice review written by David Patterson and John Turnage in CMR in like 2007 that talks a lot about kind of what goes into this. And it really, a lot of it remains very accurate. It's a well thought out described process there. But I think really you hit the nail on the head and that really, you know, what we, when we approach a new breakpoint or when we're considering revising a breakpoint, it really falls into three baskets and it's first and foremost, microbiological from an MIC distribution standpoint, looking at whether or not things are susceptible, whether or not they're resistant, where the MICs live, et cetera. And then from there, basically we go to the PKPD space, look at rats, mice, lungs, you name it. We stick it in an animal, we rip it out. And we're like, hey, look at the cool colony counts and all this neat stuff. And then finally we turn to the clinical data and go, hey, does this stuff work in patients? Because the last time I saw, I checked, there was no neutropenic mice thighs on any of our ID consult services. So it's always nice to make sure that the stuff actually works in the patients. And so really what we try to do is balance these three baskets in a way that creates something that is useful for the clinical lab. And I think as you pointed out, it, there's a little bit of a dark art to it. I'll never forget the first time Joe Cuddy showed up at one of the meetings and he's standing next to me in the back of the room and he looks at me and he goes, this is really how this works, huh? And I'm like, this is exactly how this works. And to Mike's point, it's, oh, the first couple times you show up at these meetings, you're like, I'm not even sure I understand exactly what's being talked about here and the learning curve on it can be pretty brutal. But to Mike's point, it's one of those things that 
once it gets a hook in you, if you enjoy it, you really enjoy it. And you tend to, as Mike said, find yourself getting involved with more and more as you move along. Yeah, I think a dark art, magic power, Harry Potter, whatever you want to cast over this is accurate because you guys do yield an unbelievable amount of influence, which must be an important cross to bear, I would think. I was going to say, it must make you feel important, but I know all three of you are very kind and humble individuals, and I think you more disrespect and love how meaningful this is, because for a lot of people, this is very black and white. Quite literally, you look at in your EHR, and it's either black or red, right? right. Yes or no. Yeah. And what we'll learn and what we'll unpack over this miniseries is that while you have to set a threshold of yes or no, because you have to do something to move forward to guide clinicians on whether or not we can use these drugs. There really is a lot of variability at every level, what dose you're using, what the MIC is, and appreciating the realm of error within MIC reporting, how these piece together to what you can safely do in a patient. And I think that's a good, a big piece of this discussion as well. Breakpoints are really set to give a signal of this is what you can safely do. If we could dump 400 grams of antibiotic into a patient, we could kill anything. And so it's a matter of what can we do safely for our patient taking into account, as you said, the preclinical data, the clinical data, any epidemiological data, as well as the PKPD. And so you're setting a threshold and you're setting a dose a lot of the times. And I think too, Aaron, we never, we, I think we all really try hard to your point to always remember at the end of the day that this really all does come down to taking the best care we can of our patients. And I think that does come with some pressure. And I think that's what leads to a lot of the conflict and discussions in these rooms is that everybody's trying to do the right thing for patient care at the end of the day. Yeah. Jason, how does U.S. CAST and related, you mentioned it, but UCAST, which for our listeners is the European Committee on Antimicrobial Susceptibility Testing, as you mentioned, Jason, how do the philosophies of these organizations differ from CLSI? How are they similar? Yeah, so first off, I would say that I predominantly just want to learn how to treat immunocompetent mice myself. So that's my primary goal and function. So I feel pretty good about that. Now, but I would say that U.S. CAST and again, U.S. CAST and UCAST just to add more acronyms to this discussion and confusion to this discussion, we don't necessarily always see eye to eye on these things either. Two things that I would say, Aaron, I would just highlight is one that the same variables are what we're considering. Again, as Jim nicely pointed out, and actually you nicely pointed out for us, but we're looking at those three things. We're looking at MIC distributions, we're looking at PKPD, and we're looking at the clinical data. I think where a lot of the differences between the organizations come into play is how they weigh those things and exactly the willingness they are to bend on the different things. And that would actually, that would lead into the second thing that I would really highlight for our listeners. And that's that I think it's really important. And I love that we've all acknowledged that this is an imperfect science. And I think it's really important for people to understand and appreciate that. And really, I would encourage our listeners that when these breakpoint changes come and when organizations differ, look to actually their rationale documents, what went into those decisions, how they weighed these things, because you may or may not agree with it. I'm not saying either are right or wrong. It's just, again, the best attempt of humans to try to make sense of this mess that comes up. And 
I think it's really important for the end user to realize that there are trade-offs that go into that conversation and the different trade-offs can lead to different susceptibility breakpoints. And that's where you get a lot of these differences between the organizations. So I'm really glad that's come up in this conversation because I think it's critically important for listeners to understand it. Yeah, I agree. Thanks, Jason, for saying that. We also have a lot of international listeners to Breakpoints. I do want to acknowledge, and I'm glad we're talking about the UCAST perspective and even beyond because they they are different sometimes, or sometimes UCAST, I know I've looked there for Breakpoint combinations that we might not have in CLSI and vice versa. Yeah, Aaron, one thing I would say on that, just as you bring up UCAST, is that they might use different dosing regimens. They might have different drugs available just for dosage forms. And so that can always lead to differences in exposures, right? And then subsequently breakpoints. That's a really great point. Thanks for highlighting that. I think there's one more organization that we don't have represented on the call, but at least for our United States listeners want to acknowledge that the FDA also sets breakpoints, so to speak. And so... Can you briefly describe for me, maybe Mike, you can outline this for us, how that works to what we ultimately have to implement in clinical care? Because I think some of our listeners are people that aren't as intimately involved with decisions that happen in the microbiology labs, or even if you are, I think there's a lot of opportunity for infectious diseases specialists, stewardship specialists, and our micro colleagues to collaborate on these things, especially when updates come out or new regulatory requirements come out. So can you explain to us the process of, we've talked about now four organizations, UCAST, USCAST, CLSI, and the FDA. Who makes the final recommendation and what do labs actually implement right now in the United States? Sure. So that's, yeah. It's a that's simple a, question, yeah. Mike. Simple question. Yeah, no problem. Okay. So FDA is critical because antimicrobial susceptibility testing devices have to get FDA cleared or FDA approved. Okay. And that's critical because most of our clinical laboratories use automated susceptibility testing devices to give us results. And it used to be before 2017 that the breakpoint was embedded with the label of the approval of the drug, which essentially meant that you couldn't change your breakpoints. And of course, if any of our organizations wanted to change our breakpoints, that was not a good situation because there essentially was no way for the FDA to change the breakpoint and thus no way for the devices to change to reflect what we think is the best science in patient care. Thankfully, based on the 21st Century Cures Act, starting in 2017, the FDA now can update their breakpoints essentially in real time. And they do this through a website everyone should be aware of. Just Google FDA STIC, and that will have every drug and then every bug and whether the FDA has their own breakpoint or whether it recognizes a different standard organization's breakpoint. Like it'll say, recognize CLSI, and then I'll give the document. And so that has been great because the FDA can actually change their breakpoints. And that's important because it gives device manufacturers a path to actually update their breakpoints to make it easier to use in clinical labs. Now, a clinical lab can follow the breakpoint of whoever they want. They can say that they're going to follow FDA breakpoints. They can follow CLSI breakpoints. They can follow USCAST. They can follow UCAST. And as long as they document, and this is a CAP or College of American Pathology accreditation requirement, as long as they document that they've discussed it with their stakeholders in the hospital, they can choose whatever they like. The problem, however, is that if the FDA breakpoints, let's say we want to change Piptazo breakpoints, and we'll talk about this in a future episode. So if the device is still using the old breakpoints, then that clinical lab has to do a validation study 
to prove that in their hands, with their use of the device, that they can use this device off-label. So it creates a big burden for the labs. It's not as easy just to say, hey, lab, USCAS or CLSI just changed their breakpoint. Can we implement it tomorrow? The answer is no, because the devices that they're going to use to generate these results will then have to be used off-label, which requires validation from the laboratory. And it's actually quite a lot of work for the clinical laboratory. The ability of FDA to update its breakpoints to reflect the latest science that our organizations provide to them is really important. And so there is a process now, I can speak for CLSI, whereby when we do update a breakpoint, we submit a rationale document that's also available on the website to FDA. The FDA will review it and comment on them. And in some cases, they've agreed with what we've done. In some cases, they haven't. But at least there's a pathway for this process to become smoother. I think Mike makes a point that a lot of our listeners don't fully appreciate. And Mike, I know that you and Lars do a ton in the lab. And so I really want you to come back in and talk about this a little bit too. These validation studies that are required for labs to make some of these changes are absolutely no joke. And they are a time sink. And I think we're at least hopefully a lot of our audience is aware that micro labs are probably second only to pharmacy in places that hospital administrators don't like to spend money and may not be as staffed as well as we would like. And micro lab tech shortages right now are a major issue. So again, to Mike's point, I think that we need to understand that this isn't to be done lightly. And we can't just, as he noted, walk into the lab and be expecting them to flip a switch and make these breakpoints just all magically appear because there is considerable time and effort that then has to go into that for the lab. And Mike, anything you'd add to that? No, it's, it is a lot of work. And again, that's why I think it's important. So the difference, if the FDA recognizes a breakpoint, then device manufacturers can revise their instrument and the devices then don't have to be used off-label and thus you don't need the same extensive validation. So I just want to connect that point there. That's why FDA recognition of breakpoints is important. But there is a pathway for that wasn't there, you know, five, six years ago. Jason, anything to add to that? I would never try to add to the brilliance of Mike and Jim right there. I'm good. Okay. I think, no, I appreciate that. I actually was going to ask, I, at one point I was thinking, what, open-endedly, what does our audience need to know that they might not know? And that grand concept of we don't know what we don't know. I think this is something, Jim, to your point, that your options are either use an FDA-approved device that you hope, and when we're talking automated susceptibility panels, you hope they, quote, go low enough when breakpoints are updated, which usually results in a lowering of said breakpoints based on new data on what's clinically achievable. What we've seen in the last couple of years, decade or so, is we've been lowering these breakpoints saying this is actually a safer exposure. So you hope your panel has wells that can go low enough. If it doesn't, then you have to have a lab validated way to test that or your options as a lab are to suppress it and say you can't test it, to offer an MIC with no interpretation based on how low it goes. They're all really suboptimal options if your automated susceptibility panels can't go to the new breakpoints. And so I think that is a really important point. And Mike, thanks for outlining that. While your lab can choose to follow the breakpoints of any of these organizations, at least in the United States, we tend to use FDA-approved automated devices. And so then that lends more to an FDA breakpoint, which currently is informed most by CLSI and then, as Jason described, by the U.S. CAS deep dives into certain 
antibiotic combinations, which we'll talk about in our subsequent episodes. How often does this happen? You said the CLSI meets twice a year. Jason, you said USCAS just had their meeting. I believe their public meeting occurs annually. Is there a certain cadence where every two years you have to look at the PIPTASO breakpoints and these things are set to a certain review standard? Or do bug and drug combinations get reviewed by your organizations? I don't want to say at random, but when they come up, like something sparks you to review something. Jason, do you want to go first? Yeah, I'll weigh in and we're going to be much different. So I actually look forward to hearing Mike and Jim's answer to this. So as I mentioned before, our goal is not an extensive list. And so what we really do is we use our membership and we use the public to identify bug drug things that need to be addressed. And so we have no standing rules that we have to do X number this year or every, you made me think of like when P&T policies had to be renewed every three years or whatever. Like we don't have any of those types of rules. We just, again, we try to meet the public or professional need for things. And that's how we look at it. So we look to our membership first and then also to the community as a whole of things that need to be addressed. And that's what we, how we focus our efforts. Awesome. Thank you. Mike or Jim, how does CLSI approach these? We've been trying to figure out how to, not to air dirty laundry, but we've been trying to figure out how to make it a systematic process. The problem is that there's always stuff that comes up in the literature. There's a lot of people, thankfully, that are really interested in this space, right? Who come up with new data for clinical data, new animal model data, new MIC distribution data. And so we have to prioritize, right? Because I'm sure USCAS isn't sitting there looking at obscure bug drug combinations, right? They want to look at the ones that are the most clinical impact. And so that happens for us too. There's only so much work that can get done. So we do have to prioritize it. And that also makes me want to emphasize that if there are breakpoints that you think need to be reassessed, particularly based on new data, a lot of times this is with older antibiotics, as Jason mentioned, anyone is free to send agenda items to CLSI for consideration for discussion. So we really encourage that because we want to make sure we're not missing some major bug drug breakpoint that needs to be addressed based on new data. And so anyone can submit that. We review all, like for breakpoints in particular, I'll review anything that's submitted to the agenda book and we will discuss it. Of course, we sometimes have to make priorities about what we're going to discuss at length and what we're going to discuss for a short period of time. But this, we need this to be an active space where everyone can make a difference and highlight certain breakpoints that need to be reassessed. Yeah, I think, Aaron, the number one question I get from people is, why hasn't CLSI done blah? And, <laughs> and the answer to why CLSI hasn't done blah is exactly what Mike said. There's 15 other things we're doing right now. We're a volunteer organization. And, and other than Jason, and you can see what this has done to his hairline, the rest of us need sleep. And so I think, again, there's only so much we can get to and in, in certain time frames, And we really do try to prioritize. But I want to come back to what Mike said, right? If there's an issue, again, if you know anybody can reach out to CLSI for, hey, why haven't you looked at this? Or, hey, I would like to come and talk about potentially changing a breakpoint for this. Or there, there's all kinds of channels in. And Mike's always happy to talk. I'm always happy to talk. And so it's one of those things where we're always looking for input. And I think also, Sometimes when we know that something's coming, we will wait 
because we're hoping that what is coming will generate some new data that will help us make decisions in kind of some of these other spaces. And I think a really recent example of that has been the aminoglycosides. We knew plazomycin was coming and we were basically sitting there watching because we knew how bad the data was when you really tried to go back into some of that older aminoglycoside literature. And we were very much hoping that plazomycin would bring some a more modern look and a more modern data set to allow us to evaluate that group. All of these kinds of different decisions and commitments and priorities go into how we decide to do what it is we eventually end up doing. Man, plazomycin holds such a special place in my heart. Just a moment of silence for that antibiotic that did so much good for the greater world. And alas, we've used it one time. But that's a nice segue into my next question then, guys. And I'm sure I'm, I can't wait to ask this question and look at all your faces, but I'm sure you're just going to laugh and say so maybe all of it. To that point, there's only so much work that can get done. This is a huge responsibility in helping people take the best care of patients that they can. You are really doing just such earnest and honest work, and we appreciate you so much, but it's not easy. So what would you say is the most challenging aspect of setting breakpoints? Data. How much time we got? Um, For the audience, I did get a bunch of rolls. Let me just, let's just think about it. Your breakpoints are predictions, okay? You're, it's a prediction. It's, you're predicting whether your patient will have success or failure based on an antibiotic therapy. How in the world can you expect a laboratory test done in vitro to account for all of the variability and whether your patient will succeed or not. Think about, and it's not just the technical stuff that MICs you know, are in a range or distribution. Think about all the patient variability, immunocompromised, older, younger, good renal function, hypermetabolic, hypometabolic. Think about the variability in the infections, the pathogen, how virulent it is, how much bug is there, did you have source control? Think about all these things. Just think about your ICU patient that you just saw, right? And so you're telling me that an in vitro test that gives you a number is supposed to somehow completely with 100% accuracy predict success or failure. It's a tall task. And yet we want to try to provide the best predictions that we can. So I just want to just think of, I want the listeners to think about that. It's amazing too, Aaron, that the number of times people are like, duh, why isn't this done? Why isn't that done? It's such a duh. It's such an easy decision. And then people show up in the room and they're like, holy crap, there's a lot more that goes into this than I, I realized. And I think we all would like to think that there are these clean, beautiful data sets out there of sick people with certain organisms given a certain dose of drug and we have bug MICs and we have PK and we can all sing Kumbaya and that don't exist. That just <laughs> flat out don't exist, right? And in, in this space where we don't have the data that we want, we are left doing the best we can with the data that we have available to us and trying to make those informed decisions. And I think as has been pointed out numerous times so far. That's where so much of this variability comes from because you have mm -hmm. smart people looking at data. You have me and Mike, and then you have smart people looking at this data. The bottom half of the screen, in, much smarter. The bottom half of the screen, the bottom Jason, half. Jason, Jim just called you smart. I thought Jason hung up. Jason had fallen off my screen. That was the problem. I think anytime 
that when you really sit and look at this, you're like, wow. And the fact then that the that we're able for the most part between the different groups to land usually within one dilution, come on. That is, that's pretty darn good when you look at the type of variability that's out there in the data sets and what's available. And I think that would be my biggest, one of, one of my biggest wishes. I've got a lot of wishes for the audience on this, but I think that would be one of my biggest wishes for the audience is to understand that the data is not perfect when you're trying to make these decisions. Jason, what do you have to add to that? Why is this? I, I would echo that. It's, again, Jim and Mike talked nicely about the, actually you did, but everybody talked about the three things that go into it, right? MIC distributions, preclinical, clinical, and they never play nice. Like, they just don't play nicely together and you have to weigh these things and there's no right answer to that. And even within the given buckets that I just said, there are issues with it. Like again, the clinical data, you'd love for there to be good clinical data, but there's it's often observational data and it comes with so many caveats. PKPD data is just a point estimate, right? And there's a range of PKPD exposures. The MIC distributions change as resistance changes over time. And so again, all of these things, it'd be really nice if they played nicely, but they don't and decisions have to be made, which is why I always come back to, again, for our audience, is that look at how the different groups are weighing these things and see, again, make a call of what you think is an appropriate way to balance those things. If we had perfect clinical data, we wouldn't need mice. Amen. If we had beautiful clinical data, with, and I think people think somehow that there's this magical clinical data set where you have right. thousands of patients infected with uh, people get the same dosing, with MICs that straddle where you think the breakpoint might be, and there's a clear cut <laughs> where you can say, here you respond and here you don't. That doesn't exist. And it doesn't exist for a couple of reasons. One, when clinical trials are done for new drugs, there's usually not resistance to that drug. And then we don't really have clinical trials after drug approval, at least not in the way that we need to really be able to generate the right clinical data. But usually we're basing it based on the clinical trial, this very susceptible population, the drugs seem to work well. And then usually we're looking at observational studies, chart review studies, studies where the testing methodology was not necessarily uniform. So those clinical data are important to look at. And we do make important observations from the clinical data. But this magical fairyland, like at this MIC, the patient gets better. And at this, they don't, that, that those data don't exist. And like Jason said, the reason there are disagreements is because we're going to weigh these different components differently. And that may not be, that may, it's going to be different based on the bug drug. So maybe certain bug drugs, I might weigh the ECVs differently. And it may differ based on the strength of each one of those buckets for that particular bug drug. So it's complicated. Mike, I'd even say that when you talk about the clinical trial data, the other thing the audience, I want the audience to appreciate is that think of all our gram negative drugs that come to market. They come to market for UTI mm. or they come to, for intra-abdominal infection in the setting of source control. And so again, is that relevant to the patient that you're giving ceftolazine to? So again, there's a lot of that's gonna also weigh into it. Thanks guys, I'm just laughing at how we all spend our lives churning out observational data. We all know how bad it is, right? But that's okay. We do our best, but how, so how has this gotten easier? Let's end on a sunshine note, cause it's me. What have we learned along the way? You guys have been doing this for a bit, it sounds like. How has the methods changed over time in, in how you approach this? What have you learned? What's gotten easier, if anything? 
I gave the breakpoint working group to Mike, which made things much, much easier for me. But I don't think it's gotten any easier, Aaron. I think I, I think that it's one of these things where the more you get into it, the more complexities you realize are out there. And like you pointed out early in this podcast, we all know that these decisions impact patient care. And so there's always don't screw this up going on in the back of your head. And, or at least I think there should be, the more you get in, the more you realize you don't know, it's a tough space and, but it's a lot of fun too. I think looking at and getting to work with a bunch of great folks, trying to come up with some of these decisions has really been absolutely one of the highlights of my career so far. Yeah, I'll give an uplifting piece, Aaron, just for you, is that I think that what's really nice and maybe Jim and Mike disagree with me, but what's really nice is that all of these components are now appreciated. And so in the drug development process, it's all considered, right? And so when a new drug now comes to market, they are thinking about all of these apps. That's why you never see the MIC distribution issue become an issue in a clinical trial because they dose accordingly, right? And so the considerations that we give and try to apply to old drugs that get super messy is a little bit cleaner, at least for now, with the novel agents, because all of that is considered in the drug development process. And so the one thing that's nice is when you're applying it to new drugs, it's part of the go, no go decision-making process. That's a great point. Thanks, Jason. Is there anything I didn't ask as we wrap up this first episode that you guys think is essential for someone listening to this to take away about the fundamentals of breakpoint setting or these breakpoint organizations. So I guess what's your swan song for this episode or what you want listeners to take home that we maybe didn't explicitly hit on or that you just want to reemphasize? One thing that I would just say is that I just want the audience to appreciate that this is an iterative process. As data changes, as resistance changes, as dosing changes, right? All of these things are going to impact that. So I know it's super frustrating when there you just got this implemented and now we're reassessing it and you're looking at this. But as data changes, science is going to evolve and, that's, and our understanding is going to evolve and we're going to have to roll with that. And so it's appropriate, even though it's painful. So just know that a decision might be made today. Don't be surprised when it's going to get revisited when new information comes out, and that's appropriate. I want to hammer the fun aspect because I feel like we're talking about how hard it is. But the hard part <laughs> is like also the fun part. And uh, I just mm-hmm. want to hammer home how much we need volunteers, how great it can be for you, one, as... How rewarding is it? You're making obviously impactful decisions. I think everyone listening to this can understand the importance of setting these uh, ground rules. But the networking is incredible. You make friends for life. There are people there because they want to be there. They love it like you do. Getting involved is one of the best academic decisions I ever made. And, and I just want to emphasize the need for volunteers and really how rewarding it can be. Yeah, I really would echo that what Mike just said. I will say that as tough as those days are at the meetings sometimes, it's still my favorite thing I do professionally all year. It's I get to see Mike, get to see a lot of other great folks. I look forward to it. The science is good. The debate is good. Academically, it really keeps you engaged and you learn so much at those meetings. And so again, if you're interested, I would very much encourage you. CLSI has an orientation for new volunteers video on YouTube. Would encourage you to take a look at that. 
All of our meetings are basically, at least the plenaries are going to be streamed going forward so you can get a sense of how things work. And if you're interested, don't hesitate to, to reach out and ask questions and, and get involved. Because again, like Mike said, we always need volunteers. Jim, I'm impressed you know what YouTube is. <laughs> Dr. Satlin, that laugh is going to cost you a beer, Dr. Satlin. <laughs> you guys heard it here first. If you're listening, USCAST and CLSI, eager for volunteers and ways to get involved if you want to learn more and be a part of setting breakpoints. And with that, the time has come, our Breakpoints audience faithful, for I Feel Nerdy. I Feel Nerdy is meant to be a safe place and a closing segment of the podcast for our panelists to nerd out over their favorite ID topics, quirks, and fun facts. For today's I Feel Nerdy, I want you each to share your favorite breakpoint, so bug-drug combo. You can't pick a drug and say you like all of them. That's cheating. You have to say, so you can't say like aminoglycosides and talk about pseudo and enterobacterialis. That is cheating. You have to pick a drug and a bug. Favorite breakpoint and why? Who wants to go first? How exciting. I'll go first. I know. I'm so for, to, I like to frame for the audience because we record these on video, but we obviously only put the audio on the podcast. I currently am like beaming. I'm so excited by this question. And these three men are staring at me like, there's nothing I want to do less than answer this question. But here we go. My favorite breakpoint is daptomycin and enterococci, which Jim will laugh at because Jim said, hey, Mike, why don't you tackle this? And I don't think I really appreciated it. It's this weird drug, this lipopeptide. It works in a funny way. We don't want to really understand resistance that well. And it was pretty much like the worst bug drug combo you could put somebody on. It's like pledging a fraternity. So it took years. <laughs> and I don't know that we came to the right place. But because of all yeah, blood, sweat, and tears yeah, put did. on the daptomycin, enterococci breakpoints, I'm going to consider that my favorite. I love when the gram negative guys are like, you know what, secretly, I live in this gram positive place in my heart. Like Jason's first publication ever was about linazolid. Did you guys know that? I it's did like, not. It's all have this little special place. So I should use that opportunity to jump in with my favorite breakpoint. So thank you for giving me time to think about this because believe it or not, I had never thought about <laughs> this before. But you might think that it would be in the gram negative space, but actually it's penicillin and pneumococcus. The reason for that is simple. Yeah, you love it. And the reason for that is simple because I really think that the story of penicillin and pneumococcus really gets to like all the things we need to do when it comes to breakpoints, right? So this was a breakpoint that was set in the 1970s. It was based off of MIC distributions. The breakpoint was 0.06, right? Because everything had low MICs. You needed a low MIC because we treated pneumococcal meningitis. And what happened over time, right, is that resistance started to evolve, susceptibilities <laughs> dropped from 90-some percent to 60-some percent. And what happened was in the 90s and the 2000s, people started to use other drugs for pneumonia because of this breakpoint that was probably outdated. And again, I feel like the way that this was handled really set the stage for what we should be doing and what we do now. So what happened was some people started to question it. Right. And so then some observational data came out saying, hey, you know what, even if it's non-susceptible, people have good outcomes. And then PKPD came into the story, too. Right. And it was like, hey, we give 24 million units of this drug intravenously and you can target MICs up to two or maybe even four. And then what happened was, is that ultimately led to our 
current breakpoint of two, which all of a sudden penicillin's just as active as ampicillin, right? Similar to a lot of cephalosporins. And so again, it was this modernization of a breakpoint based off of new understanding. And in this case, it actually brought a drug back. But even more than that, Aaron, I'm not even done there. You can see why I love the pneumococcus and penicillin so much. It's you can not see why I love this question. This is exactly what I feel nerdy is about. There are other pieces of the story that are just like really important, right? It's, oh, we still need to have a meningitis breakpoint that's different because penetration is an issue. So there's still a 0.06. It's just the meningitis only breakpoint. It's, I think the future, we should be looking for more site-specific breakpoints. So I think it's really setting the stage. And then the other thing that I think a lot of our stewards will appreciate or need to be thinking of is that remember, we also have oral penicillin, but we sure as heck don't give 24 million international units of oral penicillin. And so if you look at the doses you give of that drug and the exposures, the breakpoint for oral penicillin is 0.06 as well. And so again, it gets to the point of when you want to use these oral agents, and particularly in the beta-lactam class, it's not a bioavailability question that comes up. It's that you give much less of the drug is the big... There are some bioavailability issues, but it's really, it's you're giving much less of the oral drug just from a tolerability standpoint. And you got to be very careful in extrapolating. And so penicillin back in 2008 was probably NCLS that at that point in time, right, that made this decision. That's the precursor to CLSI for those on, on, on the call, on the call, like I'm on a talk show. Or something. <laughs> but again, it, when this decision was made, it, it was really setting the stage for, I think, what we need to be doing moving forward. And so I looked to 2008, the penicillin and pneumococcus as my favorite breakpoint. That was beautiful, Jason. Thank you for that. Jim, I feel sorry for you. He probably can't top that, but I, you can bear I'm bravery. I'm speechless. It I just, I'm near tears. So I will go nowhere near as eloquently as Dr. Pogue right there. Go with the polymyxin breakpoints. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Blood, and sweat. That's exactly right. That is exactly right. You mean, that, the, that, you mean the non-existent breakpoint? Oh, there is definitely a breakpoint. It, all you have to do is check your CLSIM 133rd edition. It's in there. Now, whether or not certain other bodies agree with that breakpoint, point and how implementable it is a completely different discussion. It was absolutely one of those circumstances where be careful what you wish for because you you say something at a meeting and then to Mike's daptomycin point, you end up with this thing stuck to you for the next five years or whatever it was with those polymyxin B breakpoints. But I learned a lot from that process. And while it sucked at times, it still was, it holds a special place in my heart. We'll just leave it at that. So for our audience, when you send that email to Jim or Mike to say, I want to get involved in CLSI, this is the story that's going to, you're going to be on breakpoints in five years telling Jim <laughs> just said, do daptomycin and so on and so forth. Jim just totally screwed that's me cool. over. Yeah. <laughs> And with that, you guys, thank you so much. This brings our first episode in our Breakpoint series to a close. I can't believe it's over. I'm sad, but never fear. We have four episodes remaining, which again, we'll be releasing over the next four weeks. Our next episode will focus on Piperacillin and Tazobactam. Then we're going to deep dive into the aminoglycosides, followed by the fluoroquinolone class. And then last but certainly not least, we'll touch on Jim's polymyxin breakpoint and some other non-fermenters, acinetobacter and tetracyclines, stenotrophomonas and ceftazidime, and what you really need to know. So keep coming back week after week as we will touch on all of those topics. 
And with that, thank you for listening to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacist Podcast. This episode was hosted by Aaron McCreary, and Breakpoints was created by Julian Justo, myself, and Jason Pogue, one of our panelists here today. This episode was produced by Dr. Jillian Hayes and Jeanette Bouchard, and it was edited by the one and only Dr. Jillian Hayes. Our production team includes Dr. Veronica Zafont and Dr. Justin Moore. The executive producer of Breakpoints is Dr. Kate Desir. Our theme song was recorded by SIDP member Steve Smoke, and this episode was peer-reviewed by Drs. Crystal Hodge and Dr. Eileen Ahaskali. You can subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and helping SIDP achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials for now and the future.